Gord Price, and this is Price Talks, a kind of special edition. We've got a conference coming to town called Revolution. A couple of thousand, mostly Americans, here to talk about transportation. So who better to take on a nice, chewy topic like that than the director of transportation, Lon LeClaire. Been wanting to do this for a while. Welcome, Lon. Uh, thank you. You are responsible for the planning, the designing, the managing of transportation if it involves moving people and stopping <laughs> for uh, in the case of parking yeah so cars and bikes moving and stopping all that fun stuff yeah so what do you do with all your spare time my spare time my gosh uh, well I try to get out in the country as much as possible <laughs> uh, I try to get where there's no cell phone service that's always really nice you know go for a hike or a kayak or a canoe oh I so get that <laughs> Uh, what generation are you? Uh, born in 65. That was just a polite way of asking how old you were. <laughs> so I'm just thinking, so I think I'm right on the border. You're right on the cusp. Boomer. Or something. Yeah. yeah. To Gen X. Uh, where'd you grow up? Uh, I grew up in Mission in high school. So you're almost a local boy. Almost. Uh, my years before that were in small towns, generally across BC, but uh, high school in Mission. Where do you live now? Yale Town. How long? Uh, gosh, 19 years now. Oh, wait, Yaletown Pioneer. That's what people said when we bought there. People said, why would you move there? There's nothing there. <laughs> and at the time, there was nothing there except nightclubs and light industrial. Yes, yeah, so for which uh, we're all nostalgic. Ah, no yeah. grocery stores, no coffee shops, no banks, no nothing. You don't have a neighborhood until you have a grocery store. Yeah. Mm -hmm. How do you get around? What was uh, your what's your modal split, as they say, in transportation? Uh, predominantly walk. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Predominantly. Well, I walk to work every day. I walk to most of my errands. Um, I've always walked to work, all for twenty two years. Even when I lived in the West End, I walked to work. It was a longer walk. It was forty five minutes walking from Yaletown is thirty minutes. Mm. Which you, actually, I, I was disappointed with the 15-minute savings. <laughs> it's less exercise. It just, uh, uh, and it's just automatically built into my day. And so if I miss a gym or exercise, at least I've got that. Do you have a car? Uh, yep. Share with my partner. Oh, what kind of car? That's a minivan. <laughs> it's mainly because he uses it a lot for work. And so it's practical, and also we have kids, so there's practical use there. Is it true the car is part of your identity? I don't think so. <laughs> I mean, I would assume people have never really seen me in my car unless they went on a camping trip with me or something. <laughs> so I, I don't know that anyone would really identify me with a car. Yeah. So if you needed a car and, and, okay, maybe price was no object, what kind of car would you buy? Well, I guess I would feel obligated to buy an electric car now, um, just because of the climate issue. So if your partner didn't need a car for work, would you have one? No. No. Car share? I'm a member of Modo, Evo, and Cartico. Bicycle? M Moby member, yes. <laughs> Going to get on an electric scooter? Uh, I don't have one of those. <laughs> we'll talk about those. Do you travel for insight into travel, into transportation? Absolutely. Um, I look at I look at for any opportunity to go to another city to see how they do it. Any opportunity. 
just love the idea. So I, the best thing that could ever happen and happens quite frequently, fortunately for me, is I get asked to speak at events. And so that allows me to go to other cities like Hamburg or Kuala Lumpur or, you know, just it, it, cities in China. Um, yeah, it's just, it's great. It's Do really you love great. getting those aha moments when you travel? Uh yeah, I guess I have them occasionally. I was oh. thinking about it me- recently when I was in Copenhagen. Uh, I kind of had a hot moment there. It was actually in response to someone saying to me that along the lines of, because it, it's actually, this is a bit of a story. Should I go into it? It is. Okay. It's just the, um, uh, someone said to me recently is that uh, you, you guys just focus on the basics, walk, bike, transit, isn't that getting old? You know, the, the idea that uh, new technology and all of that. And we have a, uh, a staff person in our planning group that f- their focus, her focus is 100% new mobility. So we're, we have a staff report coming out on the ride share that's got to, we got to deal with that. We got to manage that, maximize the benefit and all that. We have autonomous and connected uh, vehicle technology that we're exploring at the city. We got a grant from the federal government um, we're looking at what city policy would be for all that stuff. So we're on top of the newfangled technology and all that. But uh, I'm always, I always feel like when I look back in history and I look at other places, there's really nothing that replaces walk, bike, and transit. And the, the experience of Copenhagen is interesting to me because it was had such a high cycling activity. And then they went for the new technology, which was cars, and they redealed they they planned for the car. We're talking and, in the 70s, 60s yeah, and 70s. Yeah, they planned for the car, and they basically stopped cycling. And then here, they've now gone back and undone it. And the again, the productivity of their roadways now for the downtown ones, whether they're pedestrian only or the separated bike paths, and the ability to move like five, six times as many people on the same streets that used to move cars. Again, there's no technology that can be as space efficient as walk, bike, and transit. Those will never be. So that's one thing that I kind of look at when I travel is that uh, high dense, compact, interesting cities where lots of people want to be. It's all about space. And anyways. Choose a city that you think would give other people aha moments. A place where you'd say, if you want to get a sense of the future or where they're doing it right, other than Vancouver, mm. where would you go? Well, I mean, there's a lot of cities to choose from, but I think one of the most interesting aha cities is Paris, just because um, it's, it's really high density in a low low built form. So people think high density means towers, and you have a city like uh, Paris, which at six stories is achieving densities that, you know, in other cities, multiple towers are still not achieving, like, you know, like really forest of high rise. But you look up what's required to support that underground, and it's immense. Like, in fact, I was looking at doing um, an overlay uh, in Vancouver of those kind of densities and the transportation network that supports it. And you have underneath the, the kind of the subway network and the RER. You know, in our city, that would mean a subway under every single arterial. That's what's required to support uh, six-story. Now, and it's interesting because I know there's a lot of people who are interested in that whole idea of gentle density, so that rather than one house, you get six houses. 
On the transportation front, again, that's very good. It's very good. Dense, dense development is, is easier to serve and cheaper to serve in transportation. Um, but it does require some pretty big transit systems. <laughs> and so uh, the kind of the visual look of the city can be misleading. Same with Barcelona, right? Barcelona uh, has kind of a medium uh, height, high density. You mean the streetcar won't cut it? No. <laughs> and it's actually one of those things that I know that people think that uh, just bring back the streetcars and say for the densification of Vancouver. So those are the, that are interested in uniform density across the city. Um, the streetcar was the right mode for a single family, low density development. You know, y yes, car light. Uh, streetcar serves one house per, per block, <laughs> one family. You know, but as soon as that lot becomes six families or ten families, which is pretty easy to do uh, in a different form uh, of development and, and only still not go over six stories. Um, yes, streetcar won't, won't serve it. In the context of city plan, the process underway now, mm -hmm. that's almost exactly what you're going to be looking at, I guess. We're going to have to look at, oh, we're, going to look, we're going to look at lots of options, yeah. yeah. But I like the idea of uh, playing out um, what happened in other cities in our context. Where would you look? So like even Portland is a good example because it's like the, I call it the what if city. What if Vancouver 2019 is the city we are, but uh, we built the freeways anyways, just as planned, just as planned. So you, you lay them out in, in the areas, right? You know that the density that occurred in the areas of the footprint of the freeway, of course, wouldn't have occurred. So you wouldn't have got those neighborhoods like Coal Harbor and things like that because they were right in the way. You wouldn't have had Science World. You probably wouldn't have had an Expo 86 right. on that site. Um, but also you would have had a road network that uh, would have been hard for transit to compete with. So in our city, in the absence of... Uh, of um, freeways. Uh, we have a traffic system where there's a lot of traffic signals and getting from downtown to metro town, even if it's very, very light traffic, almost no one on the roads, still faster to take transit because there's a whole bunch of traffic signals on Kingsway. You know, if you hop on SkyTrain. So we have a situation where there's a travel time advantage to take transit because we didn't build a freeway system. So I'd like to play out scenarios like that to say, you know, and, and Portland's a really nice comparator because it's the exact same city size, exact same metropolitan region. Like there's so many similarities. I'll never look at Portland the same. <laughs> where would you advise someone to go in Vancouver? Let's say a revolution delegate hasn't been here before, only knows our reputation for an aha moment. Well, I mean, of course, downtown, they'll be downtown, so they'll experience downtown. And uh, I just came from a group that's just in town from the US, and they're all new to here. And they all remark about the walkability of the downtown and the density and the vibrancy and the mix of shops and all of that stuff. And I think people don't necessarily realize there's that many people living downtown, you know, 100,000 people delivers a whole bunch of other stuff that an office district just doesn't. Um, but so outside of downtown, which of course, is a place you must is a must see. Um, I would, of course, go to the municipalities around us, like North Van and, you know, and yes, for all the love-hate for Metrotown, check it out. Brentwood, check it out. In New Westminster, interesting old city center, big, you know, older than Vancouver and reinventing itself. Um, I think that that's why I'm excited about Revolution coming here is because they're, that's a, it's a conference that's uh, focus is about building livable communities around transit. And uh, I think this region does a particularly good job of that. 
Yeah, we do. <laughs> I guess I'd send them to Lolo, Laura Lonsdale. Yeah. The latest yeah. version. It's so it's so cool. Yeah. It is. They've done a really good job. Yes. They've taken the elements of, quote, Vancouverism. Yep. And now, still developing, you can say, hey, that works we have well. our, We have our opening reception there at the Polygon Gallery. And it's like, it is a perfect way to bring it. Like, yeah, this is the transit system. Hop on this ferry. Yeah. And, <laughs> and you get to see Waterfront Station. Hey, yes. do you think it has more modes in adjacent to than any other place in the world? Everything from cruise ships to helijets. I've, uh, I've always trans- claimed that. Oh. <laughs> I was a big champion at the city way back when, when we were planning for the Canada Line. And it was a worry for me that the waterfront station, you know, started to become a transit place in 77 when we launched the C-Bus. And then it became a little bit more of a transit in 85 when we opened SkyTrain. And then 93, 94 when we opened West Coast Express. And then I thought, here we come again with another transit line connecting I'm thinking and this thing hasn't been planned for this right why am I going to just pop another escalator and like not have a vision for what this place is so I was a huge champion of developing what we call the central waterfront uh, framework so it was basically saying let's let's not stop development from happening around there but let's let's make sure development supports a really integrated transit system and uh and that at that point i always said yeah and what's cool about it i would say there's no place in the world where land sea and air actually come together so that's unusual in itself usually you have maybe two um but so you have rail and you know the land is rail and buses and all of that um on the seaside you know we've got ferries and cruise ships and all of that. And then on the air side, we've got helicopters and float planes. <laughs> and so, uh, yeah, that, that kind of variety coming into a single location. And it's actually right in, in our, our, our um, slogan, right? This city slogan, by land, sea, and air, we prosper. <laughs> That's great. I, I love talking with Lon LeClaire. Always just gives me that little twist. What are you going to do, though? Now, you're a part of transportation uh, with all that unused asphalt in front of Waterfront Station. Uh, I should know the street. Cordova? Cordova, of course. <laughs> yeah. I mean, how many lanes wide is that sucker? Yeah, that one stretch is like six lanes yeah. for one block. It looks yeah. Awful. And then it uh, squeezes out to two lanes. So many possibilities. <laughs> yes. Yeah. I mean, you go around places and you look for unused asphalt. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and in our city, often we don't have it because we have a pretty tight grid. So there's not a lot of these... Um, you know, triangular intersections. And there's a lot of good examples in New York or wherever where you could say, oh, these streets intersect in an odd way and then there's all this extra space to play with. We don't, have, we don't have a lot of that. Yeah, yeah. we actually have a, a pretty regular grid with, you know, 90-degree angles and things like that. But, yeah, there's a few spots like that. Right, the blessed grid. I mean, I remember one of our engineers, Dave Rudberg, informing me when I came on council about the beauty of our grid. Not sure if you use that word, but the the simplicity and the efficiency of it. Yeah. Allowing us to say lay over a bike network. Yeah. Without having to do any basic construction. Yeah. In addition to that, um, it's resiliency. So like the again in the scenario where we would have built the freeways, we'd have had an east west one and a north south one, and they would have been the huge people mover, right? They would have moved you know, five times as many as an arterial uh, cars. But then if they failed, it would be catastrophe. 
or if you had a, a thing, an incident on them, it would be a catastrophe. With a, with a grid, so we have an arterial grid, you know, we had that emergency work we had to do this summer on 12th Avenue. We had to close it entirely for two months to replace a water main, which is a really important piece of infrastructure. But it, it almost didn't make the news. You know, and that was a, that's a really busy street. But yeah, you know, on either side, you got Broadway and you got, uh, you know, King Edward and the, and the origin destinations on a grid, you have a lot of options. You know, typically you can say, well, I could go this street and then this street, or I could go this street and then this street. And they're all kind of about the same. So Bad things that don't happen, that's not news. <laughs> that's right. And you guys get a lot of that. Yeah. yeah. Number one for me is... The Carmageddon that's supposed to occur every time you build a bike route or take a lane away. Mm -hmm. It's going to be chaos. The media all show up. Doesn't happen. They go away. They don't report it. And we go through the same cycle again. Yeah. <laughs> it's kind of like the most extreme of that for me was the Burrard Pacific intersection. Because... Um, it was always a congested intersection, especially the one direction coming from the West End, going southbound over the Bard Bridge. You know, you would wait for a good long time to get onto the bridge. And, uh, of course, people seeing us dedicating lanes, more lanes to, to walking and cycling, they could only imagine that will get worse. That's all they could imagine. They couldn't imagine that we would be very mindful of that and actually reconfigure the intersection entirely differently, you know, to do the dual right turn, to have it signalized, to give it its moment where it's not being held up by a nonstop row of pedestrians and cyclists and cars. And so now the travel time savings for people coming from that direction is like at least a minute in the rush hour. Well, I'm sure you get calls from the people who are so objecting, hi, Jenny, <laughs> and say, gosh, we were wrong. You were so right, Lon. That never happens. <laughs> uh, I got an aha moment from you listening to, let's give a shout out to Camby Report. You just did a, mm -hmm. a similar kind of podcast with them, and we'll link to it. And you said that the traffic, the volume of moving vehicles, hasn't changed on almost every street in the city. Mm -hmm. I don't know since when. And in fact, the real change has been the decreases. Yes, that's right. Lon LeClaire. I that know. Goes it goes so against perception and even common sense. Yes, yeah. Justify that, Long Leclerc. Over the last 25 years, in fact, um, typically our streets are moving less traffic, yeah. And it's a, it's, it's most of the streets that people are familiar with that are very busy, like the Lionsgate Bridge or the Broad Bridge, Granville Bridge, Canby Bridge. They're, they've all uh, pretty much been the same for 20 years. They haven't changed at all 20, 25 years. Where we've seen um, the bigger reductions are in areas where land use or big moves have occurred. Uh, the creation of U-Pass at UBC created a big reduction in all the streets headed to UBC. We saw like up to 20% traffic reduction, a number of vehicles headed in that direction. Um, and then in downtown, of course, because we brought, we almost doubled the population and in a time when we didn't double the number of jobs. So the number of people who could walk to work increased dramatically. And so there's a lot of people not making a trip to downtown. And yet, hardly anyone believes you. Well, the reason people don't believe me is because it is 
slower to drive across the city than it was 25 years ago, quite a bit slower. So traffic doesn't move as well as it did in the past. And so that's a difference in terms of like, like what people perceive in the actual data. So people perceive that we're at, that there's more and more cars every year because there's more and more people moving to the region. There's no evidence to show that, that there's more and more cars in our city, of course, because our counters are out there all the time. Um, but the perception that it's slower to get around, that's a true one, actually. And the reason for that is because 20 years ago, we had 300 traffic signals. Now we have 900. Uh, you know, 25 years ago, uh, areas like Yaletown, downtown south, had an area uh, pedestrian. Like in the daytime, in the afternoon rush, you rarely saw a person. What that means is that traffic that's turning at these streets uh, could turn easily. And right now, if you, uh, you drive around the city, you know how busy our crosswalks are. Our crosswalks are so busy that often it's very difficult to make a left turn or a right turn. And those vehicles making those turns are actually impeding the flow of traffic on those on those lanes typically. So um, the fact that the same number of vehicles on the same street 20 years later is moving slower, that's explained by that. More signals, more activity, in particular pedestrian activity. And you've been counting all of this? Yes. For what, 25 years? Yep. I presume you're getting better. Yep, we have cordons for, well, now they're, uh, we switched to a lot of automation. So in the old days, when I first joined the city in 97, there was a lot of manual counts. It was kind of the only way you could do it, or hose counts, which were pretty reliable. So we, we would use those back then. Now we do in, in embedded detector loops. Uh, the, um, the technology for counting pedestrians has finally become good. So uh, we're able to do that, provided we can get an overhead mount. Um, you can get a good count of that. It was something that was kind of stymieing us for years. Everyone claimed to have a pedestrian counter. And really, until the last two or three years, we really didn't have a reliable pedestrian counter. Hmm. Automated, that is. So these automated counters, the great thing is they count every hour of every day for all the time they're in place. <laughs> so you can look back to any day in the past and say, what happened that day? Oh, there was a game on. What, ha what happened that day? You know, what did the streets look like? Fun with data. Can you do the same for bikes? Same for our bridge, that counter that we see? Yeah. It's accurate? Yeah. So, in fact, they've become very accurate, too. Uh, typically, they're still, uh, you, we, we're kind of comfortable if they're within 10%. So, you know, uh, plus or minus 10%. Yeah, we, we always still, we do have to calibrate them. So, if they're undercounting, we can dial up the sensitivity. And then, so if they're missing a bike because it's, I don't know, a different type of metal or there's less substance to it, really lightweight. How far are we away from being able to know where every moving thing, including pedestrians, are in the city at the, at the real time, same moment, and starting to manage it on that basis? Um, you know, the, uh, right now the technology uh, for video analytics is very getting very good. Uh, and we have a lot of traffic uh, intersection cameras. And so uh, that's probably the way we will get the most information is uh, because the most complex interactions and transportation are at intersections. And uh, to understand what's going on at them, it takes a lot of observation. And then the modeling to kind of trial different operations, um, it's a lot of work. Isn't this exactly the era that we're in? Big data? Uh, yep. Yes, it is. Yeah. Who and owns so data, data scientists are yes. like the new field in every organization, and, and we're no different. Uh, we have a whole data group. In fact, we changed the name of the branch, which 
who has called the traffic management branch, the traffic and data management branch. So they manage our data and they manage traffic. And your immediate response to the question that always comes up, video analytics, I like that. Face recognition, counting, presumably being able to use phones, flows of data. Yes. How about privacy? Well, and that's where, um, I mean, for us, the the use of our cameras is very limited because of uh, privacy issues. And the same with the access to data in like the, you know, from whether it's from Google or uh, other third party um, data sellers uh, from cell phones. Um, often the the data that they can release to us is kind of when you when you clean it up for for individual identity, it actually becomes not that useful. Um, it is a it is a flaw of it. We've spent a lot of time with these uh, these data providers. We're working with one right now, uh, out of SFU Lab uh, downtown AI. They're, they've got another way of looking at the number of cell phones in a particular region. They aggregate it up to a hundred, so you can say that each dot represents a hundred people and. Uh, Again, that can help us with understanding the daytime population in the downtown and things like that and, and where they're moving to and from. But again, if it's in an area where you don't have that many people, it's not going to work that well. So Because 100 so, is a lot of people. Yeah. 100 is a lot of people. What I heard you say there was that, in fact, trying to get individual data makes the data less useful. Well, the protection of privacy issue uh, it makes huge amounts of data actually difficult to to make use of that's right yeah Mm. (laughs) otherwise if you know that someone's going from a to b and you can kind of figure out who that might be like (laughs) if you know what i mean like it doesn't take too much like to say for example you came from your house and came here perhaps right and i would be able to look and know that and then track you all around so so that's not allowed and uh yeah come on just leave that to (laughs) google where it belongs or uber or any other private carrier who mm-hmm. are going to want to hold on to their ownership of data, data, power, money. Mm. What's the situation there? Let's take Uber in particular. Let's take any any ride-hailing, anyone who uses the streets. Who owns the data? Well, I'm going to say they do. Yeah, I mean, that, that's an area that I don't actually have a lot of knowledge about, except to know that, uh, for example, with those uh, companies, they have to protect the, the rights of the individuals as well. Their, pri- their obligations are towards the privacy protection for their individuals. So when they pass data over, even in the forms that they do, so uh, provinces requiring data sharing from the, the transportation network companies, um, such as Uber and Lyft and Tapcar. Um, and, but the form that that gets delivered in is one that the world has been kind of struggling with. Uh, LA has developed a, a format that appears to work. And so, but it's been a real struggle to get a lot of data and get put it in a form that can be meaningfully, meaningfully analyzed by the government, you know, the, or the municipality who's doing traffic operations, um, but still protect the privacy of the individuals. How will you be able to manage the transportation system in its entirety without having those data flows? Uh, well, again, it's like, I don't know that we necessarily need a bunch of technology to manage the transportation system. In fact, the I, I still would say the number one source of good changes that we do out on the street are a result of good ideas coming from our residents and our businesses. Oh, example. 
Um, someone calls me and says, I think there should be a passenger zone in front of my business. We go and have a look. They think, oh, actually, it's a really busy spot and a lot of people double parking. And yes, there should be a passenger zone. <laughs> and uh, like that whole thing, I don't know that data actually does that very well, you know, um, and or the actual reason they're double parking is because it's loading. Oh, it should be a loading zone. Oh, it may be we're just not, maybe we've just need to manage the parking. Oh, it's a two hour zone. Oh, we need to, we need to bring in pricing. It's oversubscribed and no one's using the parking lot underneath. You know, the, the, the individual ideas that we get from the residents, and I'm talking hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of these a year, we are making changes to the road network in response to those. I think a lot of people don't know that. So if anyone's listening to this and if they see that, hey, that regulation out on the street doesn't make sense to me, uh, you know, call 311 or do van connect uh, because the reality is our change our city is changing so fast in so many areas the regulations that we have in place were often put in who knows when 50s 60s 70s in response to a very different condition and even a change in a retailer going from you know a coffee shop to a popular restaurant you know, or to an, another type of service provider means that e like month by month uh, in countless locations across the city, uh, the demands on the transportation systems changing. It's an art as much as a science. <laughs> well, yes, it is. But I think that you can't divorce the science. Like the, so the, like we, we will never just trust someone just so you know. <laughs> if they tell me that there's a, a problem on their street, um, I we would will like say, a reserved parking space in front of my home. <laughs> yeah, that's right. There's all these great ideas that people have. Uh, but we always want to say, okay, we need to send someone out to investigate. And so that means tell us the time that, that's when, when this occurs, you know, or the, the location, be specific about it. We'll, we'll go out there, we'll do an investigation. Um, and if we observe that what they said was true, you know, often there's a, a change we can make that can fix it. I'm thinking as you hire uh, fresh young people. They come with a different perception about how to use data, about the role of the transportation system. To compare, when I came on council, mm -hmm. uh, a guy by the name of Bill Curtis would have been your boss. And my memory was, this was a militaristic operation. This was like coming out of the Second World War with the troops, and the job was to build infrastructure. You built stuff and you moved vehicles. Mm. And then on the time I'll say when we were on council, a new generation, new changes, certainly a new direction for the city. And now, who's coming into, into your department today? And what are they like? Uh, well, the, the young people that we're hiring directly out of university, we hired 26 this, this summer can believe it, uh, directing. Engineering is going through a big expansion right now, so uh, we have a lot of young people. Uh, water, water replacement and sewer, those utilities got a big um, increase to, to kind of accelerate the replacement. So we have a lot of failures, just the nature of the age of those systems. But uh, the, the young people that we're hiring definitely have a, an attitude that's very mindful of the environment uh, and equity and... Um, yeah, so they're engineers. They have all the same training as all the engineers of the past, uh, but their they yeah their beliefs are are, are diff probably different uh, in terms of the out what what is the actual objective or what's the outcome we're looking for. You went through one of the most remarkable moments in the city's history when it comes to transportation, certainly the use of data, 
and the ability to respond to circumstances. And I think we can conclude that it worked so damn well, people really aren't aware of it. You know you what mean, I'm talking about? Like the 97 transportation plan and the reprioritization of modes? <laughs> <laughs> but thank you for referencing that. No, the Olympics. Oh, yeah, that was, uh, that's an excellent example. Yeah, it's so great. It's so great. What was that like for you? Um, well, it was daunting uh, planning for it. It was one of those moments in life you just think, how are we going to pull this off? And uh, just looking at the concentration, like we were the biggest city. Well, maybe we can put it off for a month or two. Yeah. <laughs> Not an option. Yeah. No, it's an opening day. It's coming. That's right. And uh, concentration, like, first of all, we were the biggest city to ever host a Winter Olympics. The fact that we had so many venues in close proximity, like the main media center and the... Uh, the, the state two stadiums right next to each other and that they would be activated every day. In fact, the hockey stadium was going to be activated three times a day. There's going to be three, like this is, our, our normal day is never like that, right? We never have that much activation. And so, you're going to close off all the roads around it. Yeah, we had to accommodate a, what was projected to be a 30% increase in trips to the downtown with 30% less road network. It's like, that's just odd that that adds up, but that's because we had to close uh, Georgia Viaduct, Dunsmuir Viaduct, Expo, <laughs> and, and Pacific. All these streets were closed with additional uh, security closures on specific days when we had to close like the Canby Bridge as well. But, um, and the message was simple. Uh, basically, you can't drive. <laughs> you know, like if you're going to the Olympics to see a game or to go downtown or whatever, come, but don't drive. Uh, pumped up the transit system. I loved it. We had West Coast Express operating every hour, both directions, all day long, every day until midnight. You know, those trains were full, all of them. And, you know, our normal operation is Monday to Friday, inbound only in the a.m. and outbound only in the p.m., right? Yeah. That's our normal operation. But it showed that uh, people took it on. They, they took it up right away. And I think that the, broadly the experience was like, wow. This is kind of fun. You know, I, I don't have to, I can have a drink. I don't have to think about driving home. You know, it's dark, but I don't have to worry about visibility or, you know, like they end the experience on the transit system. The, the atmosphere was fun too. And I think it's because everyone was there for a similar reason. You know, they're all having, going to the same party. Yes, but in truth, other than a few minor hiccups, it all worked. Yes. And that was the interesting thing for us was that in, at that time, we knew that our 97 plan was outdated because we achieved all the targets ahead of time. Um, basically, all of our 2021 targets were achieved by 2006. <laughs> so, uh, but then we didn't, we just didn't have the time in at that period to, to update our transportation plan because we were scrambling to plan for the Olympics. So we had to postpone the development of our, our 2012 transportation plan, Transportation 2040. Um, but it was a worthwhile delay just to have that experiment because we thought this is an experiment. Let's, because our 2040 plan said we need to accommodate a 30% increase in trips by 2040. Can we do it? You know, and the answer was, of course you can. Well, <laughs> in fact, you could do it today. Damn it, you did it too, too well. Again, it was another one of these cases where because nothing bad really happened, it was never reported. Mm -hmm. I suspect most people still don't realize what a profound achievement that was, much less the lesson that you clearly learned, which is we can take whole pieces out of the transportation system with confidence that it's not going to screw everything up. Yeah. 
Is that true, in fact? Yeah, as long as you have those alternatives in place. And so the the reality is, is that the transit system was significantly pumped up at that time. Not only that example of the West Coast Express, but they had held back retirement of whole fleets of transit buses kept them, if you know what I mean. They purchased new ones. So the, the bus fleet was significantly inflated uh, in that period. We had the purchase of the sea buses that were coming in, but they kept the old ones. So we operated old and new. So you, had, you could run the 10-minute headway. Actually, there was sailing weights, even with a 10-minute headway uh, uh, during the Olympics. Um, but uh, so you have, to, you have to provide that alternative to, to make it work. Well, we just take that for granted now. We move a couple hundred thousand people in and out of the West End in English Bay for fireworks four times in the summer, and we don't really think very much about that. No, that's true. (laughs) It's astonishing, really. I think you have to screw things up a bit for people to realize the level of what we've Mm -hmm. pulled off here. Yeah, okay, maybe I'm getting a little too rah-rah. What's the biggest problem, challenge, deficiency you face uh, the biggest challenge moving forward is sort of a success-based challenge or issue is what the expansion on the transit system is just going to be expensive. There's just no way around it. And uh, even like the fare box recovery in this region is awesome, right? Uh, oh, over 50%? 58%. So of the service provided by transit is, provide, is paid for by the fares. The only cities in North America that are better than that are Toronto and New York. You know, that those are comparable. So as we expand, we get more fares. That's good. But that other piece, the, the 42%, 42% has to come from somewhere. And that's, that's the big difficulty is like, is it more taxes, property taxes? Is it gas taxes? That, there's a challenge there. Well, I've heard you argue that uh, if you want to be able to drive in the city, you have a stake in making sure that we get all these other people who don't need to be in their cars out of the way. Yeah, actually, it's funny. I saw this uh, nice uh, just the other day. Uh, Todd Lipman had put a nice little list of it's not a it's not a war against the cars, and he just kind of listed all the stuff. But the one thing that he missed, which I thought was kind of interesting, is that um, if you really want to drive in the future, you have to really want us to do walk bike transit well, because the only hope of getting, you know, those other people out of their car (laughs) is to do that. We're never going to be able to widen the roads. Like, look at the price of property, right? It doesn't make any sense. There's no practical reality to deal with it that way. So if you really want to drive, you really have to be focusing on walk by Oh, but can't we build another bridge over Bird Inlet for the North Shore people? They really want one. Yeah, and how could we handle another 65,000 cars a day in the downtown? I just, (laughs) the math doesn't add up because it's not the only choke point. I'm guessing the biggest challenge is Broadway, Broadway subway. That's, uh, well, I mean, it's the biggest challenge, but it's also uh, sort of been solved. Like you said, we're five years away from a solution. The the project is um, super exciting. It's probably 15 years overdue. the line, the corridor right now, of course, is still a terrible experience for people taking transit because you can't, you just can't put any more service on that route. Uh, so for these five years, you know, pumping up the B line on 41st and looking at 4th and the 84 is going to be our only solution. Well, you still have people concerned about the impact of it. There, politically, I think, will still be arguments against it, maybe because of cost, maybe because of impact. Oh, 
Well, that would be strange. <laughs> Just because when you look at the project, um, it would be you'd be hard pressed to find a project in transportation of any type that has that kind of cost benefit. Uh, ratio. So, like for the thing about transportation is, some projects are expensive, but the benefits are gigantic. So, some projects are cheap, but they don't deliver much in the way of benefits. So, uh, it's not it's not simple. You can't just simply look at the total price. So, the total price at two point eight billion dollars is a huge number. There's a that's no doubt about that to build it. Uh, but the operating benefit is equally gigantic. It's actually more, far greater than that. It's more like four billion. So um, it's a good investment uh, in our city. So I mean, good that we should take it all the way to UBC now. Uh, that's definitely what our most recent studies conclude. So opening day now, the projection is 160,000 riders a day just on those in and out of those five new stations. But how significant is that? Well, compared to the Canada line, you know, it's 150,000 a day on the Canada line. That's 19 kilometers and 19 stations or 18 stations. And so this little segment is actually going to deliver more than we see today on the Canada line. Um, yeah, in, in terms of the region, if you compared it to the Portman Bridge, that's 110,000 people a day You going over that. So it's like 50% more productive and useful uh, than that bridge. And so if you think about how much money we just spent replacing that bridge. But that's just to Arbutus. And just to Arbutus. And so the the unfortunate thing is that in our updated modeling, uh, we the last go-round that we did on this, um, you know, almost 10 years ago now, uh, showed that we could manage uh, west of Arbutus uh, with a bus-only uh, connection. Uh, now the projections are showing that opening day, we're actually going to have a problem with that. So um, it does mean that as soon as possible, we should be finding a way to get that extension built because it's not going to be a comfortable thing to explain to people that this is this is just how you have to accept it. <laughs> it's going to be, yeah, there's going to be this full bus. This is the bust. first time I've heard this, Lon. This is news. Uh, well, I think that... Chaos, opening day! Well, I mean, we it, became, it came public when, uh, just before this council supported the extension to UBC by SkyTrain. That was based on a study that TransLink had just completed. So that's really only about a year old. Uh, but yeah, it did uh, conclude that we thought that we had about five years uh, of growth that we could accommodate before the bus connection would fail. Uh, but now it doesn't look like it doesn't look like we have that. And this is before Jericho and UEL. And this is assuming the existing zoning that's out there, <laughs> which of course is not what uh, probably will play out. So my hope is that the good thing about it, though, is that piece can start construction at any time after this piece that we're building and just starting construction right now. Uh, so ideally, if we don't take too long to make a decision we wouldn't have to uh, struggle too long with the terminus at Arbutus, if you know what I'm saying. If we could, if we could start building that other segment uh, soon, you know, we might only have to wait three years or something. Just don't turn off the switch on the boring machine. Yeah, and I don't know if it's that simple. <laughs> we'll see what the proponents come in uh, with now, because, of course, design-build, you never know exactly what kind of innovation they're going to drive. Huh. Uh, we know that it's going to be a board tunnel uh, between stations. The stations themselves need to be a kind of cut-and-cover type uh, activity. 
But um, what they actually come in with, uh, it will be it will be interested to see. Well, the concern of people west of Arbutus in particular, but all along the line, Mount Pleasant, etc., is that you're going to change their neighborhoods profoundly. You're going to turn them into metro towns. Mm-hmm. And uh, I do, speaking to metro town, remember you saying that there would be stations along the Broadway line when built that already have high density and the capacity to serve in the same way as metro town well the the new stations um in particular mount pleasant the new station at canby broadway oak granville all of those locations today are technically higher density than metro town is today higher density in terms of population and jobs uh, so jobs and population within 400 meters of that station is greater today uh so arbutus today arbutus and broadway right now uh is a little bit less dense than metro town but not by much if you look at it again so it's kind of speaking to that six-story high density form versus the towers in the park kind of form that you see out at metro town so big visual impact of metro town but it doesn't necessarily achieve a lot of dense development there's a lot of still there's a lot of mall and parking lots and things like that and open spaces whereas our city is generally you know the buildings build right out to the property line typically you know right out to the sidewalk and then fill straight up i guess the biggest argument in favor of broadway is you don't really have any choice no you can't think about managing growth density existing populations much less coming yes without it that's right in fact the and the decisions on land use you know, we should be mindful of them because we should be thinking about them in terms of the long-term capacity of the system we're building. Uh, but the uh, projections that we use for the cost-benefit analysis is always based on existing zoning. So it doesn't try to kind of anticipate what might come in the future with a different council or with this council or with a different land use. What's the most transit-oriented neighborhood in Vancouver City, Vancouver? Uh, the most transit-oriented neighborhood is Joyce Collinwood. <laughs> so uh, I think we have close to 40% of the people that live there taking transit to go to work. So those towers that you see at Collingwood at Joyce Station? Yes, the whole neighborhood. So it's uh, it's the when we're looking at our neighborhoods, it's, it's everyone in the houses and the towers. Um, but yeah, they, they're very transit-oriented because, you know, to the east, they got Metro Town. To the west, they have downtown. And SkyTrain Sky is a really practical option for them. It gives them a lot of accessibility. Very large Filipino population there. So mm-hmm. probably serving in healthcare. It doesn't mean that the lowest drive mode share, though. So that's the other thing is that, remember, like in the downtown, almost half the people walk to work. So you have the downtown, people who live downtown walk a lot. So the most popular way of getting around downtown is walk. And then the inner ring, you know, the, the Fairview, Kitsilano, um, Grandview, Woodland, Mount Pleasant area, really high bike share. You know, 15, 17% is expected in those areas. Can you actually tell me the most bikeable neighborhood? Um, actually, I don't know off the top of my head, but it's probably Grandview, Woodland or Kitsilano. What is happening to growth in, in cycling. Do you have any recent data on that? My sense of it is kind of intuitively it might have flattened out. 
Um, we don't, yeah, it's still growing, but it's not growing in leaps and bounds. That's right. Yeah. Uh, we had a doubling over a period where we were, when we first introduced the separated bike lanes into the downtown, we saw significant increases. And uh, in our mode share, it went from you know, 4% to 7%. And that's significant. Uh, in the most recent years, uh, we haven't seen that kind of growth. Although you should be able to get some network effects when you complete the separated bike system. I mean, I can feel the difference as a West End boy coming in on the north part of downtown. There's no separated route until I get mm-hmm. to Hornby. And it, now I really know this makes a difference. Yeah, I mean, for me, when I joined, I didn't have a bike for a long I biked a lot during university, and then I didn't have a bike for many, many, many years. And uh, and then Moby came along, and I started cycling again for the first time in probably 10 years of not cycling. But, um, you know, I'm an old person now. <laughs> <laughs> Born in 65, as you know. Uh, and uh, I would def- I always uh, stick to the separated routes. I'm not an adventurous cyclist at all. So if I look at my origin and destination, where am I coming from, where am I going to, my decision to make that a Moby trip is 100% influenced by how well is that served by a bikeway. <laughs> And that's it, if you know what I mean. So, yeah, there's certain routes that it just works really great for. And then there's other ones where I just I just won't do it because it's too securitous to kind of stay uh, to avoid the traffic. Are you guys ready for the next wave? I can feel it starting. Electric bikes and scooters. Yeah, I think that that's going to be we have a we have a prototype for the Moby uh, e-bike. Uh, the challenge there is that to to introduce that type of thing, we have to get electricity to a good a, a high enough number of the the stations that the you know they will migrate occasionally to a charging one and then get charged while they're parked at the station. So we, but the I think that will be transformational because again the other reason I wouldn't choose a Mopi is if it's up a steep hill. <laughs> And I wear a suit, and uh, I don't want to be sweating. No sweating a lot. That's right. So, so I might wear, ride it in the downhill direction, but not the uphill. And the we have it in the basement right now, and it is it is magic. It's kind of the electric assist style. So there's no electric help if you're not pedaling, but if you're pedaling, you get a little help. And uh, on a hill, it's like magic, right? Yeah. It's just like magic. You feel like a superhuman. Uh, so you're still having to put in effort, uh, but it's not that it doesn't feel any different than the effort that you would put in on a level street. It Scooters feels like that. don't have that, that requirement at all. Scooters. Oh, yeah. You just stand and drive. <laughs> My revelation has been in Tel Aviv, and I realize now that it's not an exception, but scooters and electric bikes are becoming the traffic, at least in some parts of the city. Mm. Again, density yeah. flat, subtropical. Yeah. I get all that. But the future is absolutely clear. This is going to come as a, a tsunami, not just a wave. Are you guys ready? Well, I think that uh, this network that we're putting in can accommodate a lot. I mean, when you look at the, again, the productivity of a bike lane is really, really high. So uh, at the upper end, a separated bike path like Hornby can move upwards of 7,500 cyclists an hour. And you compare that to that, that when it was a traffic lane, which is like 700 people uh, people an hour. So the productivity of those lanes can continue to grow for many, many years as we see explosive growth in, in bike. But I do see one problem. You're going to have scooters and bikes moving at up to 30 clicks, maybe higher, per hour. 
and the bikes are going to be back there at 10 to 15. Well, I think that uh, on the busier corridors, that's certainly something we would want to look at is whether or not you need multiple lanes. Oh, yeah. Or to, to you allow. need a passing lane. Yeah, that's right. Well, actually, right now we design for passing. So even even the Burrard Bridge, for example, it's one way in each direction, but it's a, it's a width that's designed for people to be able to pass other people, knowing the different abilities. Yes, but not Hornby and Dunsmere. Well, those ones are designed for passing, but because they're two-way, you have to kind of look for an opportunity in a gap in oncoming tra- yeah, bike traffic uh, in order to make the passing maneuver. No, you guys aren't so ready. <laughs> they, 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 work, they work well in that format when the volumes are kind of mm. below the <laughs> 7,000. It sounds like you've been stuck in some bike traffic. Uh, uh, what I saw, certainly in Tel Aviv, it was just an aha oh, moment. Oh, yeah. It was an aha yes. moment. I know, but they're probably achieving that 7,000 cyclists uh, an hour or something Yes, but like they're that. basically using the arterials, if you know Tel Aviv or really any city. Oh, that I They're see. in the traffic. Yeah. They are the traffic in right. many cases. Uh, it's anarchistic. You know, you can feel yeah. that mm, they're making this up as they go along. They're using the sidewalks as well. And this is not good. They mentioned huge amounts of complaints, yes, and lots of accidents, too. Well, when I was in Copenhagen, they have 50% mode share now back on bike, right? So 50% on bike of all trips, which is really, really high. And uh, I biked around there, and it's really clear that you are traffic when yes. you're there. You're single file. You're behind a long queue of cyclists for the, to get through a signal. And they're all you moving more to, or less the same speed. Yeah, and, you have, you, well, and the, the, the benefit they have is they're, they're flat. And so the speed differential is generally going to be less of an issue as it is for us. I've been wondering why it's taking us so long, in fact. The technology doesn't seem to have been picked up at the speed that it is in other cities, particularly for e-bikes. Yeah. I think it's because we, we value that exercise component. It could be, Maybe. yeah. No, it's curious. What about other dead things that we can see are on the way, like parking garages? <laughs> We're not the kind of town that just, you know, builds on our, our surface parking lots. We tear down parking garages. I don't know if this is happening at the same speed in other cities, but it's going to be like the gas stations. We're going to be down to the last few of them not long from now. Yeah. The, so we brought in a new uh, a change to the uh, parking bylaw, which allows for downtown buildings. Any any building coming in downtown now uh, doesn't have to. There's no minimum requirement to provide parking. Uh, you have to provide your accessible parking and uh, passenger par- passenger zone, and that's it. Uh, and the reason we're able to do that is because we look at we surveyed all the lots downtown, and we could see that we're less than 65% occupied. And what that does is it allows us to... Less than 65% occupied. Yeah. That means getting close to half of the available parking isn't being used. That's right. Yeah. So we could see it was going to be low risk uh, for us to allow buildings without parking because generally downtown is dense enough that we can consider the public a parking that's available in all the parkades and, and lots uh, is a district resource, if you want to think of it that way. What we're doing is we're actually increasing the profitability of the existing lots by allowing a building to get built without parking. And then they can, you know, and we can see how that goes. Like maybe they still won't fill up. You know, it's possible. We had a big drop in occupancy with the opening of the Canada Line, which was shocking and noticeable by all parking operators. So the city, uh, of course, we're in the business through Easy Park. So we could see the cancellation of the monthly passes that kind of flowed in right after the opening of Canada Line. So it's, it's not even, you know, necessary that these lots will get fuller uh, with time. Is there anything you can do with an uneconomic parking garage, parkade? Um, 
tear it down? <laughs> well, the, 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 it is something that we identified in our Transportation 2040 plan and our climate uh, response is that um, when we do build parking, the idea is to have them more retrofitable. Because right now, um, a lot of the parking underground and in structured parkades, uh, the ceilings aren't high enough, the floors are sloped, uh, repurposing it for another use isn't really practical. And uh, but you could see how if we fix that, you know, give them a bit more clearance, made the requirement that the floors be level, have ramps that are removable and, you know, have it so that they could be turned into storage or some other use, you know, artist studios or fab manufacturing or then then that would be a positive thing. What about curb parking, street parking? Is it really too valuable just to be used for car that occupies the space for even a few bucks for an hour or two? <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, the curb parking is something that slowly does get reallocated. Uh, usually that's the way it goes. Oh. Uh, well, like towards separated bike lanes or towards uh, bus lanes. So, um, you know, we're hearing a lot of people concerned about the removal of parking on 41st, for example, for the creation of bus lanes. Um, but uh, the priority that that provides um, is so significant that uh, it's it's an easy trade-off to make. Easy for Vancouver, not so much in West Vancouver. <laughs> well, I think it's it's a challenge for us too. I mean, businesses and residents, some of them uh, are are in a situation if they don't have a back lane or they don't have another option, eliminating that stopping option in front of their place can be an issue. I'm waiting for that moment in the West End where there are more. Oh, I, we have already reached that actually, in, <laughs> right in front of my building, where there were more car shares, Evos and Cardigos, and there were quote, you know, single occupancy. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I'm waiting for the day when you know it's a hundred percent, and then I'm waiting for the day when we get to the point where no, you just can't use curb parking for just cars to park. Mm. It's got to be for the Amazons of the world to drop things off the post. Right. The car shares, the electric charging stations. Yep. Well, I think that, uh, I mean, that's the reallocation that's happening right now quite actively is definitely for car share vehicles. The uh, preparation for the transportation network companies too, like the, the Ubers and Lyfts and tap cars, um, is actually going to create a lot of uh, reallocation of space for passenger zones. Um, to 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 manage them in a way that doesn't uh, substantially increase congestion, that's going to be a challenge for us. Uh, congestion, substantially increase congestion. Hmm. Hear that still all the time. Heard it back when I was on council. Congestion, <laughs> congestion, and the absolute assurance that people in comments and letters come in and say congestion has gotten so 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 much worse. Yeah, we're locked in in gridlock. How can you think about approving more? development or removing a lane or you hear still that all the time yeah i hear that all the time and the interesting thing is that the uh in all cases i don't think i've seen a single example where um the development wouldn't help this situation the like in down at marine and canby when we were doing the redevelopment there uh the marple community was pretty uh, you know they're near the near the bridges there's the oak street bridge and the arthur lang bridge and they see the queues and the last thing you should do is put a bunch of density uh there and that's just going to make the streets operate even less efficiently at the canada line station yes so like at marine drive canada line station um, but 
it's easy to show that like the, the people do show up somewhere. Like if the population of this region grows, it's, if those people didn't land there, they probably land in Burnaby or in Richmond, in which case they are creating the traffic. <laughs> you know, if we put them here, uh, they're probably not using the bridge. You know, they're probably not using any of those bridges. So in all the various scenarios, it's our best hope. In addition to that, what I could say, it was like a, that is a perfect example of that particular area of residential single family homes all around it had very little they could walk to. They had to get in their car to do everything, absolutely everything. And then now they have a grocery store, a drugstore, cinemas, a bar. Um, they've got a place that they can walk to. I talk to those people all the time. They say, it's so great. I can walk to the bar. I can walk to TNT Grocery. It's like, oh, this has been changed my life. And, and so, a handy transit line. And a handy transit line. But, but you know what I'm saying? To change the behavior of the individuals there, we had to bring the stuff. That was kind of like the the number one goal uh, or kind of um, big move number one for the climate emergency response is walkable city. It basically says ensure that 90% of your daily needs are within a reasonable walk. And what that is is a land use direction, which says put stuff where people live. <laughs> I'm going to go back to my time on council. <laughs> I feel so nostalgic about it. <laughs> and I do think that was the time when engineering and planning were brought together to recognize that the issue wasn't just on one hand, yes, moving yeah. vehicles on, on the other, doing land use planning. Yeah, Ann McAfee and Dave Rudberg, they, they formed a bond there and they understood it. They basically, uh, Ann McAfee always said it's about mobility and accessibility. It's the way she described it. Accessibility is, it's just there. It's right there. <laughs> uh, versus mobility is like, if it's not right there, then I have to use mobility. Like now I have to get on a bike or take transit or get in a car. When I look at the design of the Burrard Bridge, and everything that was achieved there, all of those layers, everything from heritage preservation, of course, all modes, yeah. safety, yeah. even suicide prevention. What a creative achievement. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a it's a really great project when I look back at it. You know, it's of course ten years in the making. Have you got international recognition for it? Oh yes, we've won a number of awards uh, for the project itself. Do you, as an engineering department, as part of a city that thinks of itself as urban, urbanistic, do we get uh, recognition internationally? And if so, how would you describe it? Oh, we get a lot of recognition internationally. I mean, the the awards themselves, which I actually got my boss to put up an award shelf, just so you know, because a lot of times uh, I know that our partners, um, you know, Charles Gauthier from the DVBIA or the various people that we've involved in these various projects have, you know, supported us uh, on them. And then I don't think that they realize that they get recognized for the accomplishments they are. So I said, let's put the shelf out there and just have those sit there so that when people come to the office, they can look at it and go, oh, yeah, oh, we want an award for that? That's, that's exactly good. That's exactly what should have happened. Yeah. And uh, we're also recognized because we do get asked to speak uh, on a number of issues, you know, in the world of 
like pioneer, pioneering the second, the separated bike lanes. You know, we brought in the designer from Copenhagen to sit with us when we were developing the Transportation 2040 plan. And uh, we still shared all their, like they they were really good at helping us with the design too. Because these are new traffic control devices that, you know, were not in existence anywhere. We didn't have any consultants to be able to hire to help us through this. You know, we were, we were really designing from scratch. Well, how good are we compared to other cities around the world? Well, I mean, I would say that we're the best. <laughs> I mean, in North America, you look at uh, the shift in um, walk-bike transit. Generally, you don't see a really strong change in a lot of cities. And you see it improving in places like Toronto and Montreal, but not to the state that it's changing in Vancouver. So the, the journey to work census is the only thing that's truly comparable, where you can say the same question asked to the same people it's the same result. Like well, with the way, just you know, the way we gather data about trip diary survey or the way we do our panel survey, no other city does a panel survey. So like, like uh, we do a longitudinal survey of how our residents are getting about, and I can't compare it to anyone because no one does it. Uh, and then the way that Translink collects trip diary data is different than other cities too. So there's very difficult time comparing. But on the journey to work census data, that's the one that you can compare. And in a 10-year period, you saw Vancouver go from the third place on walk bike transit to first place you know and that's a 20 percent jump in walk bike transit in terms of journey to work i think some of the stuff that we've achieved the reality that we live in is in a sense not believable it goes against the narrative it goes against what people think is common sense mm -hmm. it goes against what they believe to be true and still do yeah and and because we haven't screwed it up to the degree that would allow us to in a sense make corrections things have pretty much worked out the way we wanted them to. Well, I'd say even going back to the original regional plan in the mm -hmm. 70s, cities yeah. in a sea of green, yeah. regional centers, joined by rapid transit, that model we've sustained across the region, across ideology, consistently, to the point where I think, yes, the benefits are apparent, but maybe not to the degree well, yes. Success. Well, the the fact that, that we've meet all that's right because we the fact we met all those targets early and continue to do that right with the, even with the plans they they feel ambitious and like you're putting yourself out there when you set these goals and these targets for a distant future, uh, but the fact that we're able to meet them early uh, is an indication of that. But in addition to that, like if you then look at well, is a past trend indicative of a future trend? Typically not, right? Like, and the reason I say that is because what's happening now in terms of the scale of development intensification about rapid transit, I would say it's on steroids now compared to before. You know, um, Expo Line, we had some development at Joyce Collingwood, but what we're doing along Canby for the Canal Line is multiple times more, more massive than that. And even it's being criticized for not being dense yeah. enough. Yeah. And what about it, Nanaimo and 29th? And the planning says that they're going to look at those areas next. Yeah. yeah. And same with Rupert and Renfrew. I mean, the, but you look at the region and you look at the downtown, I mean, the scale of growth. Uh, so, again, the, the example downtown, five, five million square feet of office space under construction all at once. We just hit the record low for vacancy for office like just this month, right? Uh, that is spelling a completely different success story than what our transportation models had laid out. 
if you know what I'm saying. The challenges of success are transit investment. <laughs> Coming at the same time as a, a wave of automation in ways we're just beginning to understand. Mm -hmm. Do you think that um, automation in particular, people love talking about automated vehicles, regardless of when or how they come, there's going to be change. Mm -hmm. Do you think that um, the ability to understand and regulate well, to plan, design and manage, that's your mandate, can be met in a world where larger entities and even government will be dealing with transportation. The example I would use is like telecommunications. I buy a plan, I get some hardware, I get a range of amazing services mm. I can't live without. If I don't have to have a car, but I buy a service and that service is privately provided, mm -hmm. and they give me everything that I presumably need in a suite, including access to transit, if not the ownership of the transit system themselves, mm -hmm. Really? Are you guys somewhat secondary players? I don't believe so. <laughs> but I guess I perceive um, it'll be interesting to see how automation plays out. Because there's, a, I think that it's going to be a lot more incremental than a lot of people are suggesting it will be. And I think that uh, the appropriate applications for automation might be more in fleet and um, fleet operations than a private automobile. And that's the, and and I, I say that just because the the task is really repetitive. A lot of our stuff that we do in our works yard or a bus driver does is the same thing again and again and again. Perfect and again. for automation. It's perfect for automation. That's right. And it doesn't mean that uh, you don't need a driver on a bus. For example, uh, you still need an attendant. Uh, someone has to monitor that everything's going well and people are paid and there's no fights barking out or something like that. You know, like they. But you Serve probably the cappuccino. you probably get a better quality of service, right? I think that that's what uh, the opportunities, either you get a safer, uh, safer operation or you have a higher quality service. And same with, uh, like I can think about whether, like we're looking at automated and connected technology in our fleet, so city operations. And you think about, we have a whole bunch of police cars, we have a bunch of fire equipment, we've got parks equipment, we've got paving equipment. Every teeny bit of automation that has come to those, uh, whether it's automatic transmission or, uh, you know, uh, braking that prevents uh, collision or whatever, has been a benefit. And so I think that we can continue to, to, to do that. You know, I think that's uh, the positive part. Well, I'll throw in my, <laughs> my prediction. Uh, I just don't think it's going to be economically viable for most people to afford to own and operate their own car. That, that could because be because yeah. of collision avoidance technologies. If I buy a car today, it's immediately out of date. More and more, it's all about collision avoidance, that's not right. automation. Collision avoidance—that's mm -hmm. ninety percent of the cost, isn't it, of insurance? So, as more and more people go to fleet services or alternatives, and I'm here in my aging car with no collision avoidance, I can only think that my liability. It's going to be astronomical, and at my age, at some point, government is going to tell me that risk is just too great. Yeah, well, also, I think that we'll start to factor in people's minds. I mean, the reality is that a lot of people have stopped driving or stopped driving as much because great options have come before them, you know, like the one-way car share. People with cars use one-way car share. 
you know, because they they say, well, I'm going to go there, but then I'm going to get picked up by so-and-so, or I'm going to go there because I'm going to have a drink and I'm going to get a taxi back and it's cheaper to take a car one way. It's like all kinds of reasons people are doing that. And so um, I just think that, and then you have like the transportation network companies coming in and we have, we keep tweaking this and now it's connecting already trip planning with Mobi and transit is starting to be integrated. I don't know if you've seen that on apps. Like when I use my transit planner now, it shows me the fastest way there is to take SkyTrain in here, switch to a Mobi and then Mobi to this station tells me exactly which station. <laughs> so like the the variety and the complementary uh, aspects, the, the cornucopia of transportation options, I think will make owning a car seem less and less reasonable. You can you can rent for two hours for three days, you know, and you're going to save a ton of money. And I get the latest toys. In a very expensive city. It's <laughs> going to have all the new bells <laughs> and whistles. Right. It's never going to be old. Yeah. <laughs> you don't have to change the tires. That's right. Yeah. Huh. Well, okay. How do you plan for what you can't plan for? You just know that there's going to be new innovation, new ideas, new players. Mm -hmm. You're the planner, dude. Well, again, like, again, being really reflective on it, as I was talking about the Copenhagen example, and even the Vancouver example, you know, the freeways and, and uh, private automobile as the technology of the day, you know, when we kind of got distracted from the base bread and butter of transportation, which in dense cities dense cities is walk, bike, and transit. I just can't see that changing because it's a geometry thing, right? Like it's a, it's a, again, I can't see a way that an autonomous vehicle helps us move more people on our streets. It doesn't work. Uh, if they share that vehicle with a bunch of other people, that's fine. That's called transit now. <laughs> if you know what I mean. So uh, the the encouragement of those those options and making those options viable for people has got to be the bread and butter. Still, I just don't see a way that it will stop happening. One last question. I'm a fellow with SFU, so I know I know they would be very unhappy if I didn't ask you this question. What do you think of the gondola after SFU? <laughs> That is a great project. <laughs> I can't believe that hasn't happened yet. Uh, talk about a benefit-cost ratio. Last time I saw that, it was even better than the Broadway line. I have to admit that, but it's a very much smaller project because it's only, who knows, like $150 million or something. But the, uh, the benefit side was over three. So uh, you, you really, really should do it. Like... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> there's greenhouse gas savings. There's like not just the greenhouse gases of the fuel burned in the diesel buses that very inefficiently have to floor it with a full load of passengers going up the mountain, but then break all the way down. But the embodied uh, energy and greenhouse gases in that vehicle itself and the fact that that bus gets so beat on that it has a turnover or life expectancy that's a fraction of what a normal bus would be. And here you have a solution where the weight of the vehicle is counterbalancing the weight of the vehicle. So all you're lifting up the mountain is a person in a cab. <laughs> and you can do a bunch of them and you can make it really frequent because if you've taken gondolas, you know that they're coming by all the time. So you just hop in the next one. So the, the quality of the service will be there. It's just such a great project. <laughs> SFU thanks you. <laughs> And Price Talks thanks you, Lon, for the more than an hour we spent doing this. This has been great. I think we maybe had more aha moments than almost any interview I've done. Oh, great. Thanks, thanks Lon. You're welcome.